Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Agilisys podcast, which this time is focusing on the topic of interoperability in the UK healthcare system. My name is Austin Clark and I'm your host for today's discussion. With new models of care constantly emerging, existing models evolving, the rate of digital transformation accelerating, and demand for far more integrated healthcare models, there is a clear need for effective information sharing between care settings, organisations and geographies, as well as between professionals and citizens. Information sharing is therefore vital if patient outcomes and quality of care are to be optimised and integrated ways of working across health and care are necessary to enable care professionals and citizens to better manage care. Crucially, this means there's a reliance on IT systems to be interoperable with one another if the future vision of care is to be delivered. Joining me from his home office to discuss this topic in detail is Paul Malcolm, Head of Healthcare at Agilisys. Paul has nearly two decades of experience in healthcare technology and has some thought-provoking views on interoperability and what needs to happen if we are to achieve integrated ways of working. Paul, welcome. Uh, Hi Austin, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to you. Great stuff. So uh, let's start the discussion by finding out why you think interoperability is so important to the healthcare system. I think that's a really great question, Austin. Um, Interoperability is something that the NHS and any healthcare setting across the world really has been talking about for for decades, it seems like. Um, And I think originally it was very focused on the interoperability of of healthcare systems. But I do think that change is evolving. I do think that opinion is evolving. And now that we start thinking about integrated care systems, um, we start more to think about well, what actually does interoperability mean? And it's not just about interoperability of technology. Um, more and more, it's much more about interoperability of, of data, of people, of processes, of organisations, not just healthcare organisations, but local government organisations, uh, voluntary sector organisations. And I think one of the things that we've seen recently is even when we look at examples such as the COVID-19 responses, when we're looking at the COVID-19 responses and how do we mobilise both within the NHS, but actually as a country, how do we mobilise? Then it became very apparent that multiple agencies were having to work together for the benefits of other citizens, including and especially vulnerable people. And one of the things I think that we did incredibly well as a country was, was take that and, and embrace that and, and move quickly to help those most vulnerable in, in the shortest period of time. In order to do that, though, we had to create some uh, opportunities to share information, to share data, to share uh, citizen, potentially information that might have been seen as, as too confidential to share in the past. And I think one of the examples we've seen from this is a broader view or a higher level view of what actually does interoperability mean um, across a wider system, across the wider health and care system. And I think it's important that we include the care system um, as well as the health system. Because when we start looking at potentially new ways of working, new models of care, what the new norm's going to be to coin the phrase, then one of the, what we're starting to think about is the tighter integration of health and social care has to come. When we start thinking about how are we actually going to look after our, our, our citizens, our people, and those most vulnerable in need of help? Which organisations are going to be involved in doing that? And of course, it's the NHS, of course, it's uh, primary care, acute care, mental health care, lots and lots of different settings, um, which includes social care. But it not only includes social care, I think it includes the aspects that are often not talked about. Um, and that's things like the voluntary sector. It's about the 
the hundreds of thousands of volunteers and charitable organisations that support vulnerable people day in, day out. And to a lesser or greater extent, those, those are recognised and visible, um, or not in some cases. And they all work away in the background, producing and, and delivering really valuable points of care. Now, in an ideal world, um, all of that information would be, would be collated and captured, and we would have a much more holistic view across an ecosystem of actually what um, services we are providing to our citizens and to our patients. I think the interoperability angle to this starts to get people questioning. It's not just anymore about how do technical systems talk to each other, um, which is valuable and important and unnecessary. But more and more now, I think it's much more about how do we share information and data and people and processes across different geographies, different organisations, different um, points of care where we can actually help people by having much more interoperable uh, data and people and processes so that we can deliver the best possible outcomes to those that we're choosing to serve. Very good. That's, that's a great uh, great starting point there. And, and you mentioned COVID-19 and the, the kind of impact that that's had on the system. Do you think that, that it will lead to, to lasting change, uh, both in terms of the uh, system, software, uh, and with, with kind of volunteers and their appetite to, to help? Will, will it bring communities closer together? I think that's a great question. I, I think there's a lot of debate, and I think to some extent the jury's still out. Uh, there's a few things we have seen. We have seen, particularly in, in primary care, a, a massive increase in uh, remote and virtual appointments. I think at the start of this, there was a, a huge desire to think that um, all GPs could switch to video conferences and video, video consultations. I think the reality of that is it's not quite true. I think what some of the evidence we're starting to see coming back is that although video conferencing and video consultations have the place, the vast majority of patients uh, would rather talk to people on the phone. And although remote consultations are still happening and, and will continue to do so, I think there is a real blend of video consultations aren't necessarily the only answer to this, and uh, telephone conversations still have their place and will continue to have their place. A lot of people are much more used to and comfortable talking through a telephone than they are over a, over a video consultation. And that's not to say that things won't evolve over time. And, and with the, you know, there's a, a, a well-publicised group of uh, suppliers who are actively promoting uh, video consultations. And, but more broadly, I think it's about remote consultations. And I think the public in general have, have become more used to accepting that approach through necessity as much as anything else. Um, so we're starting to see a degree of acceptance, perhaps, for a digital transformation in, in primary care uh, than, than has been accelerated, I would say, because of what the COVID-19 uh, necessity has brought to bear. Um, I think you mentioned the, the sort of the social impact of it as well. I think the volunteering sector was was dramatic, that the, the spike in people putting their hands up to actually want to help, to help people in local communities. There's, there's lots of publicised examples, myself included, who, you know, I've spoke to neighbours that we haven't spoke to in, in 10 years or more. Um, and I think that in itself is, it brings a sense of community. I think the, the applauding for the NHS on a Thursday evening was, was a hugely emotional uh, and incredibly successful thing to go and do. Uh, and I think anyone that I've spoken to that, that joined in and enjoyed that actually did get a real sense of community. And again, that's something that wouldn't have happened as a result of COVID. But what, do we, what does that mean? And is that sustainable and lasting change? I think the, 
the certainly the the embracement and the uptake of digital technologies and the acceptance of digital technologies from the population i think that's been that, that will not be rewound i don't believe that we'll ever go back to where we were before we might go back to an acceleration in fact of some of the more the digital technologies that we could use and embrace that has been talked about for, for many many years across the health sector uh, but now we're actually starting to see them implemented at scale but it does open some other opportunities as well it does get to start to think around well, what about care homes and what about care settings and, and there's lots and lots of care settings as as you start to think about the population aging and where does that actually mean that care will be delivered and we always assume a care is delivered at hospitals or in primary care but more and more that's not the case um, most people with long-term conditions uh, and certainly multiple long-term conditions are either in care homes or being treated at home so home care is as important as care homes and when we start thinking around well how can we use technology to enable that? That opens up some interesting conversations around the use of remote monitoring, and the use of telemedicine, the use of um, other digital tools that are already out there that could be used and could be used at scale and in earnest to actually help people, help keep people in their homes or in settings, care settings where they're most comfortable and, and to keep them out of hospitals. Um, hospitals are seen as, for most people, somewhere they don't want to be. Um, and particularly to spending a lot of time in hospitals, I think being able to have care outside of that setting in a safe and controlled manner is, is really, really key. And it's, it's a real benefit to people. Um, technology, and going back to your point about interoperability, interoperability of using services uh, and technology that can talk to each other, that can collate information, that can share information at, at the, uh, whatever it needs to be, that can raise alerts and go through monitors. Um, now that's particularly new. But it hasn't really been adapted at scale. Um, and I know I think what we're seeing is, is more of an acceptance of the population to start thinking about different ways of using technology. And that will all rely on some level of uh, digital transformation and some level of uh, digital infrastructure to help support the information that, that we're going to be capturing. That's interesting because you, you mentioned there that interoperability is something that's been talked about for, for a long, long time and the technology exists nothing is new i think think is is kind of what you said which, which sums it up so kind of what's holding us back from from true interoperability is it a, a lack of standardized data or is it underinvestment there was a great uh, report from the, the national audit office recently that, that clearly showed that investment in technology in the health system is uh, is lagging behind where it should be is it legacy tech? Is it failed investments of the past? And what's your view on, on what's kind of stopping that, that mass uh, adoption of uh, of the latest technology that, that's needed? Um, I think there's, there's a few aspects to this. Uh, I think historically we'd say there's been a lack of, of standardization, a lack of standards to encourage interoperability. Um, in the health sector, there's there's been lots of goals at this. Um, HL7 is a protocol. There's many now. There's opening HR, there's fire standards, there's lots of things that are can be done to help enable um, clinical systems to share information and to talk to each other in, uh, in a more optimised manner. Um, but I think that's only really part of the story. When you start thinking about what goes on beyond that, I think the, the danger of interoperability is, is thinking about it purely as in a healthcare systems interoperability mode. It isn't just a technology, it isn't just about sharing data inside a hospital. 
and it's very although that has its place i think it's very much important to take a much wider context of this and to start thinking about how do you share information what is the protocols you're going to use to include things like social care systems um, what information is appropriate to share and what isn't appropriate to share when you start thinking about the the, the broader context of this then having having a, a forum a mechanism an ability to actually to say these are the standards that we're going to adhere to um, and this is what you're going to get from these standards but that might not be perfect for everybody um, and i'm sure there'll be a million reasons why people will say well, that doesn't quite work for me but i think at some point we have to take a view that says what's going to give us the biggest benefit for the most number of people in the shortest pace of time and we start thinking about it in those terms that really can open up some doors and can start us thinking about well where are we going to get the biggest return on our investment and, and is that going to create the biggest gain for the population for the country um, in the shortest period of time so that we can share the information i think it's worth remembering that when you speak to people in the public uh, a lot of people expect us to share this information and a lot of people are quite surprised that we, we aren't sharing the records or, or medical information between healthcare systems that uh, gps and, and uh, acute settings are not better joined up that there's not a better process of going to different hospitals in different locations um, and them still knowing who you are and what your there's lots of examples of this and, and i mean this has been talked about for many years but i do think that you know thinking about it in a much more holistic view thinking about embracing uh, not just the interoperability of healthcare systems but ensuring that covers um social care and the voluntary sector as well including care homes including home care settings it opens up some interesting conversations around things like social prescribing as well but all of this is around based on you know, having access to information that is available appropriate appropriately to the right people at the right time in the right place and ultimately i think that's what the goal of interoperability is about with what you've said there do we need one organization to take responsibility or, or do we need to, to bring multiple stakeholders together um i i think that's a very political question um i, I think there's lots of reasons why the uh, the system has grown up the way it is now and, and as always it's one of those things if i wanted to get to where i want to get to i might not choose to start from where i am but I think that it is what it is, and I think we do have to have a, a desire. And I think, to go back to your point about COVID, I think that does create a momentum. I think it does give an opportunity to really drive forward an integrated health and social care system. Um, you know, the, the department's joined up now, so that's at least as a start from the top. But it really does have to invest both in healthcare and in social care, and, and recognising where the overlaps are. And I think there is a, a growing recognition of that now, whereas perhaps in the past, Healthcare and social care have been treated as very separate things, very separate budgets, very separate agendas. But it has to come together, and, and the move towards integrated care systems is, is a good step in the right direction. Hmm. In terms of funding, do we need to, to kind of bring it together centrally in that case? Is, is the healthcare system still working in silos uh, in, in terms of the, the investment and where it's spending and its kind of own individual agendas? Um, I think there is, a, I think historically that's very true. And I think that's just the way that things have been. It's been the way the money has flowed. Um, and it's been very much a case of people are getting commissioned for services that, that only those services. I do think there's a recognition, certainly at a, a policy level, um, and there's some interesting thought leadership pieces going around this, around actually we need to take a step back uh, and we need to look at what is the best way to spend our money as a, as a country. 
Um, and there's been lots of talks for many years around the prevention agenda and can we prove any benefit from a prevention agenda. And it really simple examples. If, if you look at public health funding, which is funded through local governments, investment in public health can reduce things like uh, type 2 diabetes, can reduce things like um, heart disease by investing in people's lifestyles, by helping people lose weight and become more active. The benefit to that, though, is in the health sector. It stops people going to the GP, it stops people going up to the a &E. um, So investment in one place would be to benefit in another. And historically, that's been quite a difficult decision to make because of the way that money has flowed and because of the way that they, the system has been structured. Hopefully, um, we'll start to see that becoming together. We'll start to see much more of a joined up thinking approach. Um, and although we're talking about interoperability, we did talk about interoperability of processes and organisations and not just data. And I think that's a good example of where you can have an interoperable system where you start to think about you know, the individual and what are the care settings that they need, what are the care pathways that they need. Some will be medical um, and some will be social and some will be uh, things like um, social isolation or social prescribing or befriending services. Or someone to help with the shopping, and that goes back to your voluntary, your volunteering approach, um, and all of those things for an individual are really, really important. And they're not; they don't all come from the state, they don't all come from the health service. But for the individual, each one of those different service groups, each one of those people attending them, are incredibly important to them. Um, and they typically any information about that individual is not shared; it's not shared at all, never mind appropriately. So there's definitely things that can be done to make it to make a difference, to make an improvement. Uh, and if you start looking at those sorts of system-wide um, approaches and add in some of the digital tools that we have in terms of uh, monitoring, in terms of falls, in terms of checking if people are opening the fridge, there's, there's, lots of, there's lots of simple examples of which many are, are, are well documented. But all of those things uh, can digitally enable people to live at home. Um, and all of those things require data, all of those things require infrastructure. But mostly we require, we require people. We require people to embrace that's what the change is and that's the way forward and, and adapt and change the way the care is given. And I think that's going to be the next challenge as we as we go forward. How do we overcome that challenge? I think people will tell you you're changing the culture in, in any large public sector organisation, be the health service or local government, is, uh, is historically a huge challenge. But I do think we have a window now. I think the COVID response has created an appetite, uh, an appetite both at a political level, but also at a population level. Around where we, there is an appetite for change. There is definitely a, a belief that things can be better. Um, and while there's a window of acceptance, well as a window for people to embrace different ways of working, both as a, as a patient, as a citizen, but also across the, the, the settings who are providing care, the NHS and social care and, and others, I think there's a real desire to, to make a difference, to, to drive through those changes. Um, but it is about people. Anything, any change of this sort of magnitude requires people to embrace the change, requires people to adapt, requires working practices to change. I come back to the example about GPs and, and primary care. Um, you know, a year ago, virtual consultations and, and GPs in this country were, were a tiny fraction. Um, in the last few months, the overwhelming majority of consultations in GPs has been um, through virtual consultations. So a step change has shifted in the way that care is given because of the catalyst around COVID. Um, and that will, I don't think that will be wound back. I think that will be absolutely a way that change has been embraced and the way that change has been delivered. And I'm sure there's lots of examples of that across all sorts of different settings. 
Um, we, we uh, did this as we were involved in the Healthy Hands project. Um, and one of the things that was designed to do was to very quickly link up uh, the, the, the care provided by local authorities to those people who are most vulnerable and, and join them up with the, with the volunteers who were trying to assist and to help. And that was a very good example of adapt, adapting that opportunity, that, that service didn't exist before COVID. And um, so ramping up that service very quickly to to enable something that was deployed within you know a few weeks rather than a few months and made a dramatic difference to lots of vulnerable people's lives. Those are the sorts of things where technology can really help and we can really embrace change and drive transformation, whereas technology is a catalyst. But it was about a desire for the people from the local authorities to change the way they worked to deliver a service that didn't exist before and actually to drive that change through. That's the sort of leadership and that's the sort of difference that that people can make to the care that's delivered to our citizens. It's interesting. Let's hope that momentum continues. So uh, to wrap up, where do you see, how do you see the situation around interoperability developing over the coming months? Uh, and I appreciate that there, there are lots of challenges uh, facing the NHS and care providers as we kind of emerge from, from the COVID-19 uh, setting that, that we're in now. But uh, how do you see things shaping up? I think there's different layers to that question. I think if you think about a, a technology layer, for example, um, you know, we did talk earlier on about standards, about embracing fire standards, those sorts of things, which are becoming fairly commonplace now. But you start to think about those were designed as technical standards to enable systems to work through APIs and to talk to each other. Um, but there's different ways of doing that. So you can look at integration and interoperability, like, like a user level. So Across the NHS, there's a growing interest in things like uh, robotic process automation, RPS. And effectively, what that does, it allows systems to talk to each other, whereas in the past it's been done by humans typing data from one system into another uh, at a keyboard level. Um, robotic process automation can, can automate that process, so the information still gets from one system to another um, at a keyboard level, at a user interface level, and not necessarily at an API level. Now, it's a very crude example of this, and you know, people will argue that's not true in interoperability. And you know, at deep technical level, that's, that's absolutely true. But from an NHS trust perspective or a local authority perspective, um, actually, all you really wanted to do was get the information from one system to the other. And what's the most easiest, cost-effective way of doing that? And potentially, RPA is one way of doing that. Um, I'm actually seeing quite a lot of demands for looking at RPA. Uh, as a tool to enable that, to enable information to be shared between systems. So you could argue at one point that that could be seen as, as interoperability. But if you take the upper level, we talked about data and we talked about people and processes. I think from the, the, the single biggest thing that's going to make a difference to people's lives, um, and obviously agilisys, that's something that we're very, very passionate about making a difference to people's lives, is about how you actually look at this system holistically how you actually look at what, what the outcome is, who are we trying to help, what is it that we're trying to do, how do we actually assist the most vulnerable people in society? Is that the first priority? Uh, and that's a political question versus a technology one. Looking at technology, at data, at people, at processes um, across the system and taking that system-wide view has to be the way forward. And there's lots of challenges to do that. There's lots of reasons why integrated care systems were, were originally set up and envisaged. Um, we're starting to see some of them evolve and develop and become uh, 
that's no real. Um, but I think there's still a long way to go. Uh, but I do think there's a real desire um, across the system, uh, and certainly from the public, to have a health and care system that, that treats them holistically, so that you don't have to keep repeating to three or four different caregivers uh, the same information over and over again. You don't have to keep repeating who you are and why you're here. Uh, really simple things like that can make a massive difference to people's lives. Um, and technology has a part to play in that. Digital transformation has a part to play in that. But ultimately, interoperability of the systems, I think, is the thing they should be focused on, not just interoperability of technology. Very good, Paul. That's fantastic. Thank you. Plenty of food for thought there. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you found that interesting. The Agilisys podcast will be discussing more key healthcare transformation themes in the coming weeks. So please do subscribe to our newsletter at agilisys.co.uk to be among the first to hear when the next episode goes live. We hope to see you again soon. Thank you.